Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley. Or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, a number of years ago, when Sue and I were about to put our tiny starter house on the market, I called a realtor, a dude by the name of Jeff, who had a great reputation in our community, and I invited him to come by our house and to, uh, you know, sort of do his thing, show us what, uh, what he could do for us. And I'll never forget, we were sitting down at our dining room table, uh, Jeff was sitting across from me, and he opened his briefcase, and the reason I remember this is because on top of a stack of papers sat a Bible. So I asked the obvious question. I said, oh, so are you a Bible reader? And uh, Jeff said, as a matter of fact, he had just started reading the Bible. So I asked the follow-up question, so why did you choose the Bible? I mean, you could have chosen another book. Why the Bible? And he said, you know, I was reading in a business magazine, and the article was all about the favorite books of successful people. And at the top of the list was the Bible. So he said, I decided to start reading the Bible. So Jeff was hoping that the Bible would do something for him. He was a self-improvement kind of guy, you know, that the Bible would somehow shape his life. So is that a realistic expectation? You know, that, that this book, which was written by 40 different authors from every walk of life over a 1,500-year period, starting at about 1,400 B.C. up through A.D. 90, so we're talking thousands of years ago, is it crazy to assume that this book is going to be able to speak to our lives today? Well, this is actually a claim that the Bible makes for itself. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 tell us that the Bible is God-breathed. So even though written by human authors, God breathed out his word. He, God, said what he wanted said. So, so this book has the power of God behind it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that God's word is active, alive and active. Alive. What other book would you say that about? Alive and active, alive. So even though it's thousands of years old, it speaks to the contemporary issues of our lives because it's a living book and it's active, meaning that when you pick it up and start to read it, it does something to you. It gets past your defenses. It gets to your heart, to your mind. Psalm chapter 1 says that people who become daily Bible readers and reflect upon uh, God's word are like trees planted by streams of water which never wither. In the hardships of life, they don't wither, and they're always producing fruit. So these are huge claims. Is this what the Bible is doing in your life? Okay, honestly, is this what the Bible is doing in your life? Now, around Christ Community Church, we're always encouraging people to become Bible readers. In fact, last year, our mega goal for the year was Bible every day. Remember that? So we've put together a daily Bible reading schedule called the Bible Savvy Reading Schedule, and we've encouraged every one of you to become a Bible reader. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't yet. But if you are a Bible reader, have you made the jump from Bible reading to Bible application? From, from Bible intake to Bible impact. From reading the Bible to check off the box to reading the Bible to change your life. 
Welcome to week one of a three-part series that's going to teach you how to do that. The series is called Comma. Comma. Now, that's a strange name for a sermon series, so let me tell you where it, where it comes from. Uh, for years, I have been teaching a four-step Bible study method, and uh, the four steps begin with the letters C-O-M-A. Okay, and this is how you go from being a Bible reader to allowing the Bible to shape your life as you're reading it. Uh, Moody Publishers published a four-book series of mine seven, eight years ago called the Bible Savvy Series, and uh, two of the books in that series, and by the way, they're all short, easy-to-read books. I would encourage you to get your hands on them at some time. The last two books are called Context and Walk, and they teach you the C-O-M-A method of Bible study. A few years ago, a high school girl walked into the Welcome Center after one of our services, and she said, I think you ought to add an M to your C-O-M-A. So we added an M, and I thought that was a brilliant idea, first of all, because without the M, it was the coma Bible method, and I don't want to put anybody in a coma while reading the Bible, okay? But the other reason... Uh, that I like this is because comma is a punctuation mark, right? And if you're reading and you come across a comma, what are you supposed to do? Pause. Okay, so as you're reading the Bible, what the comma method teaches you to do is pause and do something with what you're reading. And so we're going to learn today what it is that you, you do. Four or five letters, rather, uh, we're going to go through them one at a time, and uh, our reading schedule, by the way, if you, know, you heard me mention the Bible reading schedule, if you're wondering where do you pick that up, we've got a couple of ways you can access that. You can get it electronically uh, through our, our Christ Community Church app, and just, just go to the homepage of the app, and at the bottom you'll see where you can tap on Bible Savvy, or you can pick it up on our website, ccclife.org slash Bible savvy, but if you want a hard copy, we've actually made them into bookmarks that you could slip into your Bible and encourage you to pick up a Bible savvy reading schedule and follow along. Uh, our text for this series, as we learn how to do comma, is going to be the Gospel of John. And there's a reason we've chosen the Gospel of John for this series, and that's because the Bible savvy schedule is launching us into the Gospel of John tomorrow. Monday. So if you haven't jumped into the schedule yet, now's a good time to do so. Okay, we're, we're going to move into the Gospel of John. And by the way, every sermon series we do this ministry season, starting now in October, running all the way through next summer, every series, with the exception of one, is going to track with the Bible Savvy reading schedule. Okay, the one exception, next month we're doing a series called Sexual Wholeness in a Broken World. That's the only topical series we do. Every other series is going to track with a Bible-savvy reading schedule because we want to make not only a Bible reader out of you, but a Bible liver, someone who reads the Bible and lives it out, puts it into practice. You get it? Good. Okay. Let's do C-O-M-M-A, and some of you know this already, but the C stands for context. I love you guys. All right. Context. 
And everything I say today about C-O-M-M-A, it's also on that Bible Savvy website, on the Bible Savvy app. Uh, we sell journals at every one of our campuses. It's a spiral-bound journal that gives you a place to record what God teaches you every day as you read his word. So you write down a couple of lines. And the back cover of that journal has got the C-O-M-M-A uh, acronym on it. So context. Whenever you read a Bible passage, by the way, they moved my stool to this side. It could throw off my groove. All right, so... We'll see how that goes. Uh, whenever you read a Bible passage, the first thing you need to ask is, what did God intend to say to the original audience? Okay, before you can decide what it says to you, you've got to determine what it said to its original, what it was saying to its original audience. Otherwise, you're going to read into the Bible something that's not there, something God never intended to say. You know, they say, uh, you'll hear critics of the Bible say, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. You can okay, if you skip context. So, context, historical background, in other words, who wrote this book? There are 66 books in the Bible. Okay, so who wrote this book? Who, who was this particular book written to? What was going on in their world at the time? Okay, what problem was being addressed? What's the purpose of this particular book being in the Bible? You say, where do you find all that information? Well, you could quit your day job and go to school to get a, a, a biblical studies degree, but that's kind of an expensive approach, both in terms of time and money. So let me give you two really simple and affordable ways to determine the context of the passage you're about to read. The first, watch the Bible Project video on that book of the Bible. Okay, these are YouTube videos. They're extremely popular. Bible Project Video. There's one for every book of the Bible. I'm going to show you a minute and a half of the eight-minute video on the Gospel of John because I just want to whet your appetite. Take a look at the screen. According to John, it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with the clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. Okay, so that's a minute and a half of an eight-minute video. It's like drinking from a fire hose, but it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of information there. It's these Bible 
uh, project videos, they're addictive. I told a friend about them a couple of years ago and she got on her treadmill one day to, uh, to work out and she watched one and she just kept watching one after another. Within a couple of weeks of working out on the treadmill, she'd gone through all 66 books of the Bible. So we're reading the Gospel of John, right? Starting tomorrow. Watch this video, this Bible Project video. It'll give you the context of this book. Now, there's a second way to get the context, okay? And that is to get yourself an NIV study Bible. And if I could, I would purchase an NIV study Bible for every one of you. I can't afford it. Uh, but just yesterday, I started meeting one-on-one -on -one with a neighbor buddy of mine who wants to get to know God. And so I bought him an NIV study Bible. I said, we're gonna do this together. We're gonna jump into the Gospel of John. And the, the study Bible, every book of the Bible, it has a two or three page introduction to that book. And it gives you all the background information. And every page of a study Bible, as you're reading the text of scripture, it's got loads of explanatory footnotes at the bottom of the page. It's worth the investment. So this is how we understand the context of whatever book we're about to begin. So real quickly, let me share with you a couple of things I learned about the Gospel of John from having watched the Bible Project video and reading my NIV study Bible introduction. Okay, this is, this is a gospel, a biography of Jesus written by a dude named John. John, yeah. But which John? Because there are a bunch of Johns in the Bible. And, you know, Bible scholars believe, by and large, this was written by the John who was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And not only one of the 12, he was Jesus' closest friend. So we're, we're going to get a biography from the, the pen of a guy who knew Jesus up close and personal. The, the other thing I learn, learned, well, I learned a bunch of stuff context-wise, but the other thing I'll share with you is the purpose for which John wrote this biography. And John doesn't leave us guessing about the purpose. He spells it out in one of the later chapters of his book, John 20, verses 30 and 31. John says his goal is that Jesus performed many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, okay, he's about to tell us his goal, his purpose, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, let me tell you why I'm writing this, this uh, biography of Jesus. I wanna record some of the miraculous things he did so that you would understand who he is, the Messiah, the promised King and Savior, the Son of God, and that once you grasp who he is, you wanna surrender your life to him and receive from him his gift of life, abundant life in this world, eternal life in the world to come. You get it? Good. Now, there are a bunch of other stuff about the context I could say, but you gotta discover it on your own, okay? I'm gonna turn you loose, watch the Bible Project video. There's a part one and a part two for John's gospel. Uh, and then read the introduction in the NIV study Bible. Let's go to the O. The O stands for observations. So, okay, when you read the Bible, if you're looking for nothing in particular, guess what you're gonna find? Nothing in particular, okay? 
In other words, if you want to find something that's applicable to your life in the Bible, you need to know what to look for. Okay, and there are four kinds of observations that the comma method will teach you to make. So let me get a new piece of paper here. Okay, four kinds of observations, and I'm going to give you an acronym within an acronym. This is to make it memorable. Okay, four kinds of information that we start with the letters T-R-T-S spells treats. So when you're reading the Bible, what are the treats you're looking for? Let me walk through them in general, and then we're going to re read the passage from John chapter 2, and we're going to look for these treats in that particular text of Scripture. So the first T stands for theme. Okay, before you read a passage, you want to know what's the general theme of this? Or after you read it, how would I sum it up in one sentence? And there is a giveaway, a dead giveaway in every passage of Scripture, and that's the heading. In your Bible, there's a heading above every passage. So if your Bible's open to John chapter 2, take a look right now. What's the heading? Call it out at the top of John 2. Jesus changes water into wine. Take a guess of what the theme is of this passage. I mean, it's probably got something to do with Jesus changing water into wine. What do you think? Yeah, that's the theme. So it helps you to know what to be looking for before you even start reading. That's the theme. R stands for repeating words or ideas. I'll just put down words. Okay, sometimes within the, uh, you know, the boundaries of one passage, you're going to find a significant word popping up numerous times. I'm not talking about the word the or and or something like that, but a, a significant word. And when the author uses the same word numerous times or repeats the same idea, uh, you know, within the context of one passage, you know something is being emphasized. Okay, then the T, the second T, this is the first T theme. The second T is truths about God. Okay, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. God wants to be known. God is not a God who hides from us. So he reveals himself in this book. So you can be sure that any passage you read is gonna teach you something about God, Father, Son, or Spirit. There will be days when you're reading the Bible and you come to the end of the text for the day and you say, I can't get anything out of that. I don't know what I'm supposed to see here. Ask yourself the question, what does this passage tell me about God? I guarantee every time you'll, you'll learn something about God. And then the last letter of treats is uh, the S, and that's something striking. You're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden you come across something that sort of jumps off the page at you. You're not sure why initially maybe it's because it's profound or maybe because it's a bit strange what does this mean uh, you know it's the kind of uh, verse or line that you underline or you put a check in the margins something striking so we're going to take these four things to look for and we're going to dive into john chapter 2 right now and we're going to look for treats okay we're going to look for one example of a theme Repeating words or ideas, truths about God, something striking. Pick it up with me at verse 1 of John 2. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his, his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells, tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, you know, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and there they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're gonna look for some treats, four kinds of observations. And by the, day, uh, by the way, when you read the Bible every day, there will be days where you'll come up with six, eight, 10 observations that fall into one of these four categories. And then there will be days when you're struggling to come up with one or two observations. There will always be something there, so keep at it. So the first thing we're gonna look for is the theme. And just another aside here, there may be more than one, one story within the scripture reading for the day. So this particular passage you're gonna read on Wednesday of this week, but you're gonna read the entire second chapter. We only read the first half of John chapter two. In the second half, there is another story. Okay, so the first story is about Jesus changing water into wine. That's the theme. If your Bible's open to John two, the second story begins at verse 13. What's it about? Call it out. Okay, Jesus is clear in the temple. So you got a second theme within the day's reading. So that's, that's the theme, okay? We're gonna go back to the water, into wine, and take a look at that theme in a little, a little more depth here for a moment. Drop down to verse 11. Middle of the verse, John says that this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. So the theme is he, he changes water into wine, and later on, John says, this was a sign to reveal his glory. First recorded miracle. What does a sign do? John calls it a sign. Doesn't call it a miracle here, calls it a sign. Okay, a sign points to a main attraction. Okay, the purpose of a sign is not to draw attention to itself, but to draw attention to something else. And if you're driving down the road and you're hungry and you see a billboard that says Joe's Crab Shack three miles ahead, okay, you don't pull off at the sign and park next to the sign and start looking for your bowl of fish chowder, right? Okay, the, the sign is pointing to the main attraction. It's three miles ahead. Okay, Jesus' miracles are not intended to draw attention to themselves. There's signs pointing to Jesus saying, take a look at Jesus. These miracles reveal his glory. They tell us something special about his true identity. This is the theme of the story we're looking at. 
Okay, Jesus does his first miracle, and it's a sign that tells us something about him. Okay, repeating words or ideas. That's the second thing we're going to look for. Okay, the most obvious repeating word central to this text is, what do you think? Yes, thank you. Wine. I hope you were thinking wine, right? It it pops up five times in this passage. If you got your own Bible in front of you, you might want to go through it and just uh, circle every time you see the word wine. And its repetition causes us to ask the question, what's the significance of the wine? You know, or or to put it another way, at the risk of sounding a little bit irreverent, uh, isn't changing water into wine at a private wedding reception a somewhat frivolous miracle? I mean, this, this, this is Jesus' debut. This is the first major display of the awesome power of the Son of God. So as his first miracle, why doesn't he heal somebody? Why isn't this the time when he calms the storm at sea or he feeds the thousands with a little boy's lunch? Water into wine, really? So let me tell you why wine was such a big deal in today's story and why Jesus chose this as his first miracle. Okay, in Bible times and probably still today, wine was a symbol of joy. The psalmist says, Psalm 104, verse 15, that God makes wine that gladdens the human heart. God God makes wine that brings joy to our lives. And weddings especially are these times of joyful celebration when really good wine flows. I mean, this is why the prophet Isaiah describes God's eternal kingdom, God's ultimate new heaven and new earth is being like a wedding feast. Isaiah 25, verse 6, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet, listen, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So Jesus makes his ministry debut on planet Earth by turning water into wine. This miracle, this is a sign, points to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate winemaker. Jesus is the source of true joy. Jesus is the host of a future incredible wedding banquet over which he will preside as the king of God's eternal kingdom. Wow. Wine says a lot. Yeah, just a footnote to this point. You know, don't miss the quantity and the quality of the wine that Jesus produces. I mean, six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. If I did my math correctly, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And it's not just any old wine. I mean, it's not Trader Joe's wine, okay? Apologies to Trader Joe's people here. This is really good stuff so that the master of the banquet says, where did you get this? You're pulling out the best at last? Wow. Which tells me, friends, that the joy that Jesus gives is massive (laughs) and it's deep and it's profound. And if you're at Christ Community Church today and you need some joy in your life because you're going through a difficult time, it's to be found in Christ. He's the maker of the wine. And he's got an an eternal kingdom that he he wants you to be part of. If you'll surrender your life to him, you will experience his joy for all eternity. 
observations. We, we've looked at the theme. We've looked at repeating words. Let's, from this passage, let's take a look at a truth about God. Now, this story is all about Jesus, the Son of God. So you, you could come up with a bunch of truths about Jesus from this story. I'm going to pick out one that's not necessarily the most important. Uh, when you read it this week on Wednesday, you'll probably come across better stuff than what I've come up with. But uh, one of the things that struck me about Jesus, a truth about Jesus, God's Son, has to do with his family relationships. Jesus' family relationships. Did you know, notice how abrupt Jesus was with Mary at the beginning of this story? Okay, Mary asks Jesus to help out with the, the wine problem, and Jesus replied, verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It almost sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? You know, Bible scholars tell us that the word that Jesus uses here to refer to Mary, woman, is it's courteous, but it's certainly not a term of endearment. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like our word, if you grew up in the South, our word ma'am. Yes, ma'am, no ma'am. You know, it, polite, but not a very warm word. You know, I'm reminded of another incident in the life of Jesus when he has spent the day doing miracles and he's surrounded by a crowd of people who want to be healed and his family arrives on the scene to take him away, you know, to get him some rest and uh, refreshment and a meal. And so somebody says to Jesus, hey, your, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside. You recall Jesus' response? He said, let me tell you who my mother and brothers and sisters are. It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, now follow the, the reasoning here, friends. It, this is not Jesus dissing his family members. He loves them. He cares from, for, for them. But they're not the number one priority in his life. And they don't dictate his agenda. You know, obeying the heavenly Father is Jesus' number one priority, which is why he says to Mary here in, in, in chapter 2, when she helps, asks for help with a wine outage, he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, I don't have directions from the heavenly Father yet, but when I do get them, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. You could already see where this is going to go by way of an application in our lives. You know, some of us are people pleasers, and we're always, you know, we're jumping when other people say jump, and we're doing what others uh, set the agenda to be whether it's schoolmates or people at work or friends. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to get my direction. I'm going to hear uh, leadings from the Heavenly Father. That's where I'll go to get direction for my life. Okay, one last thing here, something striking from this passage. Okay, we looked at the theme, repeating words or ideas, truth about God, something striking. Look at verse 11. I'll tell you what struck me, what jumped off the page. So Jesus does this miracle, and John says that his disciples believed in him. And initially, I'm thinking to myself, this is a really good thing, right? I mean, John said this is why he wrote his book, so that people would understand what Jesus has done and put their hope, their trust in him. They would believe on him. So this is really good. But then I, I read the rest of the chapter. You're going to read the whole chapter on Wednesday. Drop down with me to verse 23. John says, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Again, this word believe. I'm thinking, okay, this is, 
is going to pop up repeatedly in the gospel of John. This is good. Mission accomplished. Not quite. Keep reading. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This was striking to me. Jesus is not always impressed with people's believing. Doesn't always do cartwheels just because people say, well, I, well, I believe. And we're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John. Evidently, there is a shallow, superficial kind of believing which doesn't float Jesus' boat, okay? There's a kind of believing that is, uh, you know, an acknowledgement of certain facts about Jesus. Yeah, I believe he was God's son and he did this and he did that. There's a superficial kind of believing that's, oh, okay, he blessed me in my life and answered some prayers, so I got a soft spot here for him. There's a kind of believing that stops short of a true relationship with Jesus. Jesus is looking for a, a deeper form of believing, a believing that leads to a full surrender of our lives to him. You get it? Good. Now, I've spent... This whole sermon on, uh, what did I do with my marker? I spent my whole sermon on the C and the O, and we didn't get to the MMA. And I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to do that, and then we're going to move into a time of, of communion. So the MMA does not stand for mixed martial arts, all right? So if you, you, you've got your app open, what's the first M stand for? Message. Okay, remember participation stands for message. The second M stands for meditation. And the A stands for application. Okay, this is where God's word starts to go to work in our lives. So let me take a few minutes. I found my other marker. And talk about these three three uh, closing letters. Uh, after you have made several observations about a passage, okay, you choose one of those observations and you turn it into a message. Okay, and what I mean by that is this. Okay, you take an observation that, that you made and you say, so what is the timeless truth? What, what, what is the life lesson? If I were to make this into a wall plaque, what would the wall plaque say? Okay, so let's go back to John chapter 2 for a minute. We don't have time to do this with all four of the observations we made, but let me take one of the observations. We said that the theme is Jesus changes water into wine, and this is his first miracle, which is a sign that points to who he is. Okay, it's not intended to draw attention to itself. It's intended to point to Jesus. So here's my message. If I'm trying to summarize this as a life lesson, that Jesus meant his miracles to draw people to himself. Jesus meant his miracles to draw people to himself. Now I've got a message. So once you've got a message from one of your observations, you move to the meditation step. You push away from your Bible for a moment and you bow your head and you say, okay, Holy Spirit of God, I got this message. What am I supposed to do with this? Why is this so important? Okay, so as I meditated on the, you know, the message, 
that Jesus' miracles are intended to draw people to himself, not to the miracle. You know, I thought to myself, how often do I pray for a miracle, either for myself or for somebody I love? You know, they need a job, they need a healing, they need this, they need that. And after a while, you can almost become obsessed with the thing you're praying for instead of focusing on Jesus himself. You know, there are times, I have to admit, in my life when I want the miracle more than I want more Christ in my life. Some of you might say, oh gosh, I'm in that place right now today. You know, I need something so desperately and it's sort of taken my focus off of Christ and it's become all about getting what I need in my life. So as I meditate on that, that becomes the link to the application. Now I'm ready to to say to the Holy Spirit, so what should I do with this practically, measurably in my own life? And the application could be any number of things. So if my message is that Jesus' miracles are intended to draw attention to him, not the miracle, and my meditation leads me to reflect on how that's working out in my own life, my application may be something like, I need to confess the sin of taking my eyes off of Christ and wanting his miracles more than I want him. And so my application is to, you know, spend a few minutes in prayer saying, I'm sorry, Jesus. Or, or maybe my application is in prayer to refocus on him or to listen to a praise song on Spotify and sing along with it and get my, my eyes back where they should be on, on Christ. You know, so sometimes your application is going to be, you know, pray about this. Sometimes your application is going to be do, do this or do that. You're going to sense that, oh, the you know, passage is about generosity. I need to make a gift somewhere. You know, or the passage is about resolving conflicts. You know, I'm at odds with Joe. I got to give Joe a call. I got to get together with Joe and work it out. Yeah, or... If you were reading in Joshua, we just finished up the book of Joshua in the Bible Savvy series, and in the closing chapter, uh, the repeating word is serve. Joshua looks at the people that he's led for years, and he says, you got to choose who you're going to serve, because everybody serves somebody. Bob Dylan says that too, by the way. Uh, Everybody serves somebody. Okay, so as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. So now you come down to application. I got to serve God. Your application may be something as straightforward as I need to sign up for a great day of serving. Yeah, because that's what God wants me to do. See how this works? You're saying, oh, I'm never going to be able to remember all this. Let me tell you, after you do it for a while, it becomes second nature to you. You start You know, you get the context at the beginning, you work through observations, you come away with one that you meditate on, you form it into a message and then apply it to your life. And over time, the Bible begins to shape your life. And you're not just a Bible reader checking off a box. You're a Bible doer. God's word is making you more and more and more like his son. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I know this has probably been overwhelming to some of us. We've covered so much material, but I pray you'd cause it to stick. I pray that for some, they would just simply start reading this week, uh, John's gospel. And for others who are ready to start diving into the comma approach, God, I pray that uh, they would just write something down on a piece of paper each day that they feel they've heard from you, God. What is the observation you've led them to make in the text, God? May we become not just Bible hearers, but Bible, Bible readers, but Bible doers, Lord God. And may the life transformation bring you great joy. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.